Small Changes, Big Impact, a DFCM podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Resmovitz. In studio today, we have Jeff Kwong, family doctor at Toronto Western Hospital. He's a senior scientist at ICES and at Public Health Ontario. He's also a professor at the Department of Family and Community Medicine and cross-appointed at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Today's episode focuses on putting the novel coronavirus into perspective. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks. So, Jeff, um, tell us us about the work that you're doing in influenza right now. Yeah, so I'm an epidemiologist, and I do a fair bit of work around um, influenza vaccines, how effective they are. So we've been doing some studies looking at how effective influenza vaccines are in preventing lab-confirmed influenza in various populations. So we've looked at young children, pregnant women, people with uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and people uh, who have a history of cancer. And we've shown in all these populations that influenza vaccines do work uh, generally to prevent influenza infection. So that's interesting because most of the patients that come in to my clinic tell me it doesn't work. Yeah, I think it's really tricky. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of things going on because, you know, influenza season happens during uh, respiratory virus season. So there's lots of other respiratory viruses that are circulating uh, at the same time. And influenza vaccines are only designed to prevent influenza infection. And so a lot of people may get other respiratory infections, and then they may say that's influenza, and really it could have been another virus that they got. And then in addition to that, you know, sometimes, um, you know, it's hard to predict which of the strains are going to be circulating in an upcoming season. So sometimes they do pick the wrong strain. And it is a lower, um, you know, efficacy uh, vaccine. So there is some truth that the influenza vaccine doesn't work as well as other vaccines do. But I think some protection um, is better than no protection. And I think that's the way that people should think about it. You know, similarly to, you know, if someone has um, high cholesterol levels and we recommend that they take, uh, you know, statin medication for the high cholesterol levels to prevent a heart attack. Well, I mean, those statins are only maybe, you know, 25% effective in reducing your chance of a heart attack. And no patient will say, oh, I'm not going to take a statin because it only reduces my chance of a heart attack by 25%. But if they say, oh, you know, this influenza vaccine is only 20 or 30% effective and I'm not going to bother getting it, I think that's the wrong mentality to take. So I guess there's two questions here. Um, One, how do they determine that it's only 20 or 30% effective. Let's start with that question. How do, mm-hmm. how do they come up with that? Yeah, so we do these studies. Um, we, um, so right now, the most popular design is called a test negative design. So we find people who are symptomatic, and then they uh, get tested for influenza. And then we see if they test positive or negative, And then we look at their vaccination history. So we, com- we take the group that are test positive, and we call them cases. And we see how, what percent of that population got vaccinated. And then we look at the people who test negative, and we call them the test negatives. And we look at what percent of those people get, um, um, were, had influenza vaccine. And so then by comparing those two groups, then we can come up with an estimate of vaccine effectiveness. And those are the studies um, that we read about in the news um, every year and saying, oh, this year, this, you know, the estimate was only this effective or higher. And it depends on the strains that are circulating as well. So there's really three VE estimates for, during any given season because there's a VE estimate for each strain uh, that's in the vaccine. Sorry, VE? Uh, vaccine effectiveness. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Just for Sorry. anyone listening that didn't follow through, I just acronyms do that to people. Yeah. So so what are the, um, there are, I believe, three different flu vaccines available this year. There's a 
three-valent dose, there's a three-valent high dose, and then a quadrivalent dose. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. So there's both trivalent and quadrivalent and then the high dose and standard dose. And this year, there's no live attenuated influenza vaccine or flu mist, unfortunately. So let me interpret what you just said. So you can't get the flu from the flu shot this year. That's right. All of them are killed vaccines, so it's impossible to get influenza infection from the vaccine. Right. So any patient that comes in and says, no, I got the flu from the flu shot, it is possible if it was a live attenuated flu shot to get the flu from. But this year, it is impossible. Correct. Okay. And so of the three uh, um, different vaccines that are available this year, have you? do you guys have preliminary data on the effectiveness of it? Um, no, unfortunately, they're not available yet. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, we have to wait for the interim estimates to come out. No problem. And so um, just so for everyone's edification here, how, how many different strains of influenza are there roughly circulating in Canada in wintertime? Yeah, there's a handful that are circulating uh, at any given time. And, um, you, know, there's, you know, public health folks are doing surveillance to see what's circulating at any given time. So there's normally, um, you know, the, the most pop, uh, common ones are there's an H1N1 strain, uh, an H3N2 strain, and then B uh, strains. And of the B, there's like the, they break it down further into the Victoria and Yamagata lineages. And so these are the four main groups that are circulating, and sometimes one is more predominant than the other. So let's say some, strain, uh, some seasons, could, you could have H3N2 uh, predominant, some seasons could be H1N1 predominant. So it's really a very, um, you know, fluid situation. It can change. And so some seasons we've seen both, like, you know, m multiple strains uh, circulating at the same time. But for a ballpark, how many different permutations and combinations of, of flu are there? Are we talking yeah. 10? Are we talking 20? Well, it, talk it's really, really hard to say because, um, you know, at what point do you call it a new strain? So influenza very, is a very sloppy virus in terms of how it replicates. So it's always introducing these mutations, and so it's, it's constantly drifting, so the term we use. And so at what point, um, you know, you know, you have like one point muta you know, mutation, then another point mutation, and then when does it become a new strain? And, and so it's really hard to really classify exactly how many strains there are, but, you know, we can see that when we, and in these days, you know, we've got better technology, we can actually do the sequencing of the, of the specimens, of the viruses that we're isolating, and we're seeing that there's a huge heterogeneity, like, you know, diversity in these viruses that we're, that we're uh, you know, um, isolating. And so I, I think actually if, if people are watching the news these days, there are other viruses that are circulating along with, concurrently with, the influenza virus. That's right. And so a lot of news right now is this new coronavirus that they've um, identified. They're calling it the novel, the 2019 novel coronavirus. And so um, have you guys done any research on, on that right now? No. So I haven't been directly involved in any of the efforts there. And there's not much research going on there outside of China. There's a lot of research going on in China at the moment. Um, so, but it seems to me that, you know, as a virus, as a respiratory virus, that if we were to just focus on the on influenza for a second, just getting your flu shot isn't enough. I mean, we can't think of, of the pr protecting ourselves um, using one method for um, uh, in isolation or one method solely against trying to contract influenza. To me, I would think like 
there are other methods that you can use to, to reduce the um, contagiousness. Is that even the term that we use to reduce the contractibility of, of influenza, like washing your hands? Mm-hmm. And so um, in the same way that you said that a, um, if somebody took a statin, you get a 25% reduction. Uh, again, we don't just use statins to reduce the risk. We use physical activity. We use diet. We use um, sensibility. We look at other medications that we can use in tandem with this strategy. So what other strategies can you suggest to reduce the risk of transmission of influenza and possibly uh, the novel coronavirus? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I think the number one is hand washing. So do it often and do it well. Is that with um, soap or without? With Yes, either soap and water or with hand sanitizers. So alcohol-based hand sanitizers are oh, effective. I want to tell my son that. If he listens to this, I want him to know because sometimes he just doesn't wash his hands. Yeah, so. I know. It's so hard to tell our kids. You know, that's the one thing. Like the parents always nagging their kids. You know, wash your hands, wash your hands. But yeah, definitely washing your hands is the number one thing to help protect us against all respiratory pathogens. Right. Um, and then, you know, things like staying home when you're sick. So we call this social distancing. Um, and we call it, you know, respiratory etiquette, where you, you know, cough into your sleeve or sneeze into a tissue and throw it out and then wash your hands after that. Um, okay. So all these things, you know, and then the usual things like, you know, to stay healthy, you know, like, you know, you know, get enough sleep, have a healthy diet, you know, get exercise. All of these things can help us stay healthy uh, during respiratory virus season. Definitely. And so as an epidemiologist, have you noticed um, any surges of influenza so far this year? Oh, definitely. We've already seen, like, you know, the outbreak, um, you know, the surge in influenza. And I haven't been following it lately. I'm, you know, I'm not sure if it's going down yet. Um, typically, um, it goes up, it starts, you know, to increase in December, and then, you know, goes up further during the Christmas holidays. Um, and then sometimes it comes down earlier, you know, it's during January, but sometimes it can go on, like, throughout January and February. Sometimes we get a, like a, a double peak, so there can be a first peak, and then it goes down, and then we have a second peak later. So it's it's really unpredictable, and we really don't understand why, um, you know, how the viruses behave and, and what's driving the epidemics every year. So we don't know what causes these surges. No, surprisingly, we we actually don't. I mean, we we there's lots of theories. You know, we think it may be related to the weather. Um, so like colder weather, dry, like um, you know, lower. Uh, um, relative humidity seems to, um, in, at least in temperate climates, seems to drive influenza uh, transmission. Um, and then some people think it may be like, you know, air pollution, uh, maybe, you know, maybe people like, you know, gatherings and stuff like that. So like over the holidays when people are gathering, that might be more. And then also in schools, uh, you know, kids are, are, are transmitting it from, kid, you know, child to child. i got to talk to my kids' teachers about why they're doing that. Um <laughs> No, it just seems weird that these are all associations. We, we have no causation yet for why um, in certain parts of the winter months the influenza spikes because, correct me if I'm wrong here, but influenza actually circulates all year round. Well, in, in temperate climates, we don't see very much of it outside of influenza season. I mean, there might be the odd case of people traveling from other parts of the world, but and this is a mystery where we don't know why it disappears every spring. Um, you know, it hasn't infected the entire population yet, you know, it's not like there's, you know, an absence of hosts, but for some reason it just goes away. And so that's one of the mysteries we haven't figured out yet. In, the, in tropical areas, it does circulate year round. So if you're closer to the equator, it is like circulating year round. But in the temperate areas, so like further away from the equator, there's like definitely seasonality. There's definitely seasonality. But I guess one um, should be wary that if we are moving towards 
less seasonality with uh, global uh, climate change, then it is possible that this virus will continue to move uh, north. It will march north of the tropics and, uh, and start circulating yearly. Uh, Year-round, you mean? Yeah. Sorry, year-round. I'm not sure that climate change will lead to loss of seasonality. I mean, I think there's just more extreme weather events, but I don't, I don't think it means we're going to stop having winters. Um, yeah, they just may not be in January anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so given that uh, we've already had a surge this year and the unpredictability of the virus, would you say people can uh, not worry about getting their flu shot anymore? Yeah, I think um, I think it's still a good idea to have it if you haven't had it. Um, I mean, you could make the argument that given that most of it's passed, then you know the value of getting it this year might be lower, um, and maybe it's you know worth saving it till next year. So it's 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 a tough call, but I think given what's going on right now, um, it's not like influenza has completely eliminated. So I think it still is worthwhile getting, especially if you're in a high risk group. And is there any chance that an influenza vaccine, given this year of the strains that they've picked, let's say there's a year that there's a mismatch in the circulating strains and the strains they've picked for the influenza vaccine, is there any chance that by getting the vaccine, um, you'll, it will confer benefit in three or five years when that vaccine, when that flu starts circulating again, that strain circulates? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think the issue is that you know, when we do these characterizations, um, we look at, um, you know, the antigenic differences. So it's like how well, like it's like a certain lab test they do to see how antigenically it's different uh, from the vaccine strains. And then they also look at genetic differences, which are slightly different from antigenic differences. And so, you know, sometimes they see things that look antigenically different or genetically different, but maybe there's still some, um, the, the vaccine effectiveness is actually you know, um, comparable to one where there's a match. So there's suggestion of like there can be cross protection between strains. And this is something that we don't fully understand, you know, so we have to do kind of all three types of studies and we kind of come up with like, oh, how, you know, whether it was actually a mismatch or not mismatch. And and it's hard, to, it's not like a black and white thing you to say this was a mismatch or not mismatched. Um, it's it's very much like a very like a gray zone. It's like, you know, like subtleties, like degrees of, of gradation. Of course. Yeah. So for but, uh, but, but to answer your question, sorry, to, I didn't answer your question. So I mean, you know, the the um, the vaccine is supposed to protect against this season strains, and you know, there's some studies that suggest that the vaccine protection doesn't go beyond this season, and then there's other studies suggest that vaccine protection can go beyond the season. So um, both could be true, and um, so it's possible that maybe you know. Th- it can evolve back to the ones that were in this season's um, strains, and maybe you could get protection down the road. So I, I think that's a long way of saying that we don't know the answer yet. Okay, that's a long way of saying we should err on the side of hope and get your flu shot. Mm-hmm. So as a family doctor working in the community, do you have any suggestions, community or an academic uh, health science center, do you have any suggestions for family doctors working on the front lines or healthcare providers, you know, uh, family doctors, nurses, um, physician assistants, um, even our receptionists on the front lines that we can, some things that we can do to help protect against respiratory viruses, whether it's influenza, whether it's novel new coronavirus and anything else that, how about old coronavirus called like the common cold, mm-hmm. um, things that we can do to protect ourselves in the office, common little small changes that might have a really big impact. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is, is like what we call like, uh, screening, like active screening, uh, where, you know, when we ask the patient, you know, why are you coming in? If they say, I've got fever and cough, 
you know, other respiratory symptoms, then they, you know, when they come in, they're not sitting in the waiting room for like half an hour, an hour, um, you know, spewing and coughing and infecting the other patients in the waiting room. So you'd want to get, you know, get them masked as soon as they get into the office or tell them to put a mask on before they come to the office. Um, and then you try to put them into, a, you know, an exam room right away um, so that we can reduce the chance of, uh, of transmission to others. Um, and then you're going to have things like, you know, pass, you know, passive um, sort of uh, um, screening where you can, you know, you have signs up to tell people, you know, if you're sick, then, you know, tell us, let us know so, that, you know, you're not sitting in here uh, and spreading your infections. And then so if you are seeing patients and we should use, you know, precautions like, so, I mean, right now the, the ministry has put out guidance saying that, you know, in the primary care setting, we should be using uh, N95 masks if we have them. Um, and then also to wash our hands very frequently and to use other uh, personal protective equipment, such as, you know, face shields and, and gowns and gloves, um, if we have them. So especially if we're collecting specimens from them uh, for the novel coronavirus. So those are excellent screening um, opportunities that we have in the office. Um, but as, as um, healthcare providers, who should we be listening to? There's so much media um, being pushed out on, on us from the um, CFPC, the OMA, the uh, WHO, Public Health Ontario. Uh, who do we listen to and, and what are the guidelines right now for family doctors uh, regarding the, the novel coronavirus? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, I think there is consistency amongst all the, the groups um, and I think they are having a, a lot of communication. So at least at the federal level and the provincial level and the local level here in Canada. So, I mean, I think depending on where you are, uh, you would want to follow the local and provincial guidance. And so here in Ontario, uh, you know, we would be listening to the guidance from the Ministry of Health and from Public Health Ontario, um, and then also in the local health unit. So here in Toronto, you know, Toronto Public Health. And I think the guidance is consistent across all of them. Um, And so, I mean, I think they're saying, you know, right at this moment, they're saying, you know, we should be screening, um, you know, and consider testing for symptomatic individuals who have a travel history um, from uh, Hubei province, which is where Wuhan is, um, you know, or people who have had contact with people who've traveled recently in the last 14 days. But I, I suspect that they're going to be changing that to all of China because the CDC has now changed it to all of China uh, because they have seen that this, this, the virus has spread to other areas in China already. So what is the... Um protocol then for testing? Is it a nasal swab? Is it a nasopharyngeal swab? Is it a throat swab? Mm-hmm. Right now, it's um, it's supposed to be three specimens. So one is a nasal pharyngeal swab, one is um, a throat swab, and then the other one is sputum, if we're able to get it. Um, and so the reason they're doing this is that they can test for not just the novel coronavirus, but they're going to test for other common respiratory viruses as well as um, some uh, bacterial pathogens as well. And do you know if there are kits available yet that we can order from public health or from uh, labs in order to provide um, um, uh, nasopharyngeal swabs? Well, I think they're the standard swabs that we would get uh, usually that we have, that we should have in our offices already. Okay. Um, yeah, they're the standard ones that we have, that we get from public health lab. And do we, I, I assume we use a public health requisition in submitting um, I just don't know if there's a code yet for novel coronavirus. That's right. Well, I think, first of all, we actually have to call Public Health Ontario um, to get uh, permission to submit the specimen, so just to get clearance. So they'll, you know, get, like, so first of all, you'd want to speak to the patient and make sure that this is an appropriate person to be testing. And then you speak to 
uh, the customer service representative at, at PHO um, where they would say, okay, let's, you know, and this is what you do. And then, you, you know, you collect the specimen and then submit it. So, it, you know, it would be couriered to Public Health Ontario and test it right away. And you know what, for um, purposes of the show, I think we're going to provide the Public Health Ontario phone number in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know it off the top of your head. And not off the top of my head. No, no. neither do I. Yeah. Uh, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> Um, so that's excellent. Is there any final things you want to um, impart on our listeners today that can help us with the hysteria of um, the, I believe it's a P-H-E-I-C, um, right? Is it a right. public health emergency of international concern? That's right. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think it was appropriate for the WHO to make that uh, declaration uh, to prepare other countries um, to to be, you know to get ready uh, for the situation, um, I think you know I think we're we're learning a lot. You know, every day we're seeing more cases and we're learning a lot about what's happening. You know, as of the last count, there have been more than seventeen thousand cases and about more than three hundred sixty deaths uh, in China. Um, but I think what we're learning is that you know a lot of the I mean I think this is a coronavirus like SARS was and like MERS, uh, but I think they're very um, I think it's might be different than the other two where we saw with those other two I think we saw a lot more severe illness and I think with this one I think we're going to see a, a lot more milder illness and so um, I think you know uh, you know there's 17,000 cases or more that they've already um, identified in China but my, my guess is that there's actually many more out there that um, that are you know they're waiting for the test results to come back so there's probably more cases that are gonna be lab confirmed and then there's others out there that have like milder illness that, that aren't being picked up. And so, you know, I think, you know, I think we should put this in the perspective of like other respiratory viruses like influenza, you know, where, um, you know, we don't take that, we're not too, um, you know, we don't freak out over influenza, but my guess is that um, there's gonna be, you know, similarly, you know, a lot of mild cases and only, you know, the tip of the iceberg that's gonna be really severe. Yeah, definitely. I don't think most people realize that influenza is the sixth leading cause of death in Canada. And mm-hmm. uh, most people just kind of take it for granted. We don't actually uh, use all of the resources that we have, as I still have flu shots available in my, in my office, and people are still declining the flu shot, even though we have you know, resources to fight against the flu. And yet, if, if a, a virus came, a virus, if a vaccine came out against novel coronavirus, I think there would be people who would be like, I want that. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Maybe we can drum up hysteria against influenza and then people will get their flu shots. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it just happens inadvertently, right? Every year when there's like, you know, a teenage hockey player who dies, right, you know, from influenza, then that's when all the parents, you know, go and get their kids vaccinated. That's what happened during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic yeah. is when there's scary stories like that. And that's when people you know, would go and get the vaccine. Well, something to consider. Thank you so much for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Jeremy. Take care. Okay, bye. This podcast was made possible through the support of the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Special thanks to Alison Mullen, Brian De Silva, and the whole podcast committee. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.